Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Hello everybody, I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this lovely evening, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I had a good time watching this week's film. It got the seal of approval from my 14-year-old, which is, he has pretty good taste. So um, I think it's going to be a good talk. Right. Uh, Had he seen it prior, like you'd introduced him to it? No. He just knew inherently it was good. Yeah, yeah. His older brother walked in and said, what's this? And he says, it's mom's podcast movie. It's a good one. <laughs> yes, it is a good one. David picked it. David Luzader, how are you? Uh, I am doing well. I learned one thing from this movie, one thing only. Uh, if you're going to shoot, shoot, don't talk. So I better stop talking and I better start shooting. Yeah, and there's not a lot of talking for very long periods of time before there's some shooting in this movie. It is high suspense <laughs> um for the first 15 minutes oh. i was actually wondering whether or not anyone was gonna talk there's no dialogue for the first 10 and a half minutes of this movie yeah yeah and it's it's a heavy movie it's three hours long so certainly pause mm-hmm. now return back in three hours it's on amazon prime <laughs> for free so everyone in the world is controlled by amazon you have that membership exercise your right to watch this movie without paying for it the good, the bad, and the ugly was our paying, film. Like Netflix and Amazon are free. Yes, you're paying for it indirectly. <laughs> I digress. No, I'm, I'm paying for Netflix and Amazon pretty directly. Or just uh, do what I did and buy the movie like 10 years ago on DVD and own it now. Yeah. Oh. No, this is this is one worth owning. And uh, it was... <laughs> it wasn't around the world pick that is a film where one of the hosts has the opportunity to pick a film that is international it cannot have been made in the u.s and uh before we get into that next week is you did this to us if you're listening to this podcast oh. the voting has already happened for those unfamiliar this is when you have the opportunity not us though we do vote, to vote on what we're going to talk about next week. We have a wonderful guest next week. It's going to be a lot of fun. And you get to subject us to a film. And the voting, since it's happening right now for us, future Brett is going to tell you what that movie is right now. We'll be watching Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. Oh, I hope it's not bad. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, no, it probably will be. So that is you did this to us. And again, if you want to be able to vote on those as they're coming up, if you're hearing these episodes in your feed and you're saying, oh my goodness, they record so far in advance, I don't know when to vote on that. Well, that means you should be on the Twitter or the Facebook and you can get that information. Just search for Movie Go Round. But this week around the world, we watched the good, the bad and the ugly. In the Southwest during the Civil War, a mysterious stranger Blondie and a Mexican outlaw, Tuco, form an uneasy partnership. Blondie turns in the bandit for the reward money, then escapes with him just as he is being hanged. When Blondie betrays Tuco during one escapade, a furious Tuco tries to have him murdered. The two men reteam abruptly, however, to beat out a third man in a race to find a fortune of gold buried in a remote cemetery. David, why did you pick this 1967 film for Around the World? And also, before before you answer, also explain why you picked it for this particular um, category, because a lot of people, including myself, didn't even know this was a foreign film. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's not a 1967 movie. It's a 1966 movie, because that oh is when bad. it premiered okay. in Rome. Uh, look, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go on why this is around the world pick, I have to go with the original premiere date in in Italy. Uh, I picked this because this movie is a spaghetti western. Spaghetti westerns are westerns that are made by Italian directors. Uh, and in Italy, just like this one was. Um, I realized that, yes, uh, your three main leads are speaking English, though no one else in the movie is. Um, mm-hmm. and, but everything in Italian movies is dubbed over. Uh, it's Yes, it takes place in America, but I don't know. There's just something about having an American film, uh, having a, a director in Italy be so inspired by American films, like stuff we've talked about before. Um, 
the Magnificent Seven, to then turn around and make one of the most iconic Westerns of all time. It felt like that was a good thing for us to talk about on this show. Uh, and also because I, I do a lot of Asian cinema and uh, Nicole just recently did an Asian cinema pick. So I decided to do something a little bit different. And that's how we got the good, the bad and the ugly. Now, my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, there was this somewhat jaded outlook on spaghetti Westerns. And this kind of broke that code. This was the spaghetti Western that did it right. A bit, yeah. And this movie is also sort of the last part of a trilogy. Not really. Two uh, the of the character- characters are in the one before, so kind of. No, but, well, not really. Uh, Clint Eastwood's character is the man with no name. He has different things he's called in each movie shows up. Um, Angel Eyes has, plays a completely different character, I think, in uh, uh, for a few dollars more. Um and then this one, yeah, this, so they made the first two, which sort of were a, you know, a, a, a first movie and a sequel. And then uh, this one came about later on and they decided, well, yeah, okay, sure. It's the last part of, of the trilogy, but they're sort of loosely connected. Um, I think you get everything you need for the characters from this one movie. Um, but yeah, this movie definitely like convinced people that like, oh, hey, those Italians can make good Westerns. And it is a long movie. As I said at the beginning of the show, this is a three-hour film. And uh, one, I think one of the immediate discussion topics is, well, first of all, did anyone get through it in one sitting? I did. <laughs> you did? Okay, I did I as did. well. Um, I unfortunately did not. I had to split it up between two days. And that's what I wanted to talk about, because is it enveloping enough that you can watch it for three hours and, and feel good. Like you got something out of it and it wasn't too long. Cause that's always a topic of discussion right off the bat. When you have this long of a movie. I, I think so. Yes. Found this to be pretty absorbing. Actually, you know, you sort of the, the time frame. I guess people nowadays would look at it as, as if you're like, because it's sort of an episodic movie. You know, there's this this bit where they're over in this town and where they're escaping from being hanged here. And then there's this other bit over in this town. And then there's this bit where they pretend to be Confederate soldiers. And then there's this other bit over here. And so it's kind of episodic and it's almost like a binge watch. You know, yeah, if you, were, yeah. If you wanted to think of it that way. But it's all in the same world. It's all the same characters. And it, it's progressing the story as it goes along. You know, it is, I found it very absorbing. I sort of just fell into the world and was like, oh, okay, this is happening now with these particular people. And, um, you know, all credit to, now, did Sergio Leone write this movie? Um, oh, I or is it normally, somebody else? I normally have that information right up uh, here, but I don't. So if I can just vamp for the humblest of moments. <laughs> he was uh, one of two writers, yes. Yeah, oh, okay, being, so The other well, being Lucanio Vincenzoni. Okay, well, all credit to them for creating very uh, vivid characters. You don't really need to know a lot about their backstory to get a lot about their character. Though that um, is a point of contention for uh, one of the stars. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I felt that it was plenty, that you didn't need to know everything that happened in their past in order to understand what sort of people they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so all credit to them for that. I'm not going to give them 100% credit for the dialogue because it's not clear to me how much of it was written in English for English or how much was written in Italian and translated the best that they could or you know I I don't know who deserves credit for that for all the little sayings that Tuco has of there's two kind of people in this world there's this kind and there's this other kind yeah I kind of mentioned before, uh, you have your three main leads. You have uh, Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef were all doing the uh, speaking in English. Um, 
and everyone else, basically everybody spoke their native language, which is what we saw in Suspiria as well. So you'll have one person in a conversation speaking English and someone responding in Italian. You can tell by the lips that like they're not speaking the same language, mm-hmm. but everything is dubbed over later um, in these old Italian movies. Uh, I th- one The one thing I know that for sure was uh, not written um, was improvised was when uh, Tuco shoots that guy when he's in the tub and he stands up and he says, if you're going to, if you're going to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently it was a line he said off the cuff and uh, the crew thought it was hilarious. Yeah. it's. I thought it was brilliant. It's a great line. Who is and, everyone's. Uh, oh, go ahead, David. I was going to say, uh, so yeah, Sergio Leone speaks or spoke almost no English. So actually had a very hard time speaking with um, his main leads, uh, except for Eli Wallach, who spoke French okay, and Sergio Leone spoke French very well. So they were able to kind of communicate. And that's kind of funny to me, because this film is is incredible to me in the sense that I think it's very, very well directed, which is even more impressive if the director is not able to really effectively communicate with his cast. Uh, because there's two things with that. I mean, there's two people, the first of which we talked about Tarantino in our pre-show uh, and in our Slack chat. Tarantino thinks this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, <laughs> he says it is the greatest film of all time and the greatest directed film of all time and the greatest directing achievement ever. Uh, and then the second part of that is Orson Welles came to, uh, came to him at this point in time and suggested not making this movie because it would be too hard to direct. It would be too much going on. And because at the box office, um, civil war movies were just not doing very well. So he didn't think it would actually float. And that would, that's kind of what blindsided me. Uh, this was my first time seeing this film and I didn't expect for an hour and a half of a civil war film. I'm happy. I got it. Don't get me wrong. I love that part of it, but it's not what I expected from a Clint Eastwood Western, my first Clint Eastwood Western. It's fairly unusual for a Western. I mean, from what I understand, most Westerns take place between the end of the Civil War and like the 1890s. Right, before, before, yeah, like everything was under the American government when the Wild West was still wild. Right. right, and everything that's the whole that they plot did of Deadwood, was, right? Right, and everything they did wasn't obsolete yet. Um, yeah. By the way, Red Dead, great job handling that stuff when the car rolls in. I digress. Yeah, uh, this movie to me was fascinating in that aspect because I didn't expect to spend so long with the Civil War. I didn't expect so. I didn't expect my characters to get like engrossed within the conflicts of the Civil War just so often. Everything from Tuco and Blondie being imprisoned in a uh, a Union uh, prison camp for Confederate prisoners of war to uh, Tuco and, and Blondie and probably one of the greatest scenes in the movie changing the tide of, of a, uh, of a you know, a battle by blowing up this massive bridge. And there's just so much intertwined with that war in this movie. And when you see these scenes, they're, they're gigantic scenes with so many extras and it's so beautifully done. The landscape and the, the set design of these very large sets for battlefields is remarkable. Uh, I do want to mention something since this takes place uh, during the civil war, it is actually a prequel to a fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. Um, oh. So yeah, it's the third film in the trilogy, but it's technically the first. Um, he also gets the poncho towards the end of the movie, which he wears for the other two. Um, but also, yeah, Sergio Leone wanted to create a movie that really kind of showed the civil war a little more uh, accurately in a way, you know, he didn't, a lot of civil war movies make it seem like, uh, it's, it's the union where the stalwart heroes that, that, you know, did, that it did good and they won for, for good. And, uh, the Confederacy was a bunch of like no good cowards or whatever. This movie does portray both sides as being at war, you know, uh, whatever your moral standing is, it is like both sides were at war with one another. And that carries, very certain connotations. And Nicole put in our docket, is this movie trying to uh, get me feel bad for the Confederacy? Um, yeah. 
I was I was sitting there and asking myself in the tone of voice, like, is, is this so bad for the Confederacy? That was how I was saying it in my head. Um, because, you know, the Union soldiers are not portrayed particularly kindly. Um, at the bridge, they're not portrayed particularly unkindly, but they're running a rather nasty prison camp and every confederate camp you ever see you know everyone's they're clearly losing and they're everyone's taking care of each other and trying to do their best and you know just sort of soldier you know soldier on and and muster themselves through this as best they can with what little resources they have whereas you know the union soldiers have all the resources and all the booze they could ever need um and are just, you know, hanging in there and shooting at the other guy because that's what they're told to do. And no. it's like, yes, it's I, I think it's more accurate in the sense of, you know, these people on both sides were ordered to show up and shoot at each other and fight for particular targets that might not make any sense to either side. And... You know, it's old men sending young men out to die for s some goals of their own that the the people they send might not understand, and that that happens in all wars. That happens on all sides of all wars, and it's always ugly and brutal and stupid. Um, you know, and there are more noble causes and less noble causes, and you're not going to get me to feel more bad for the confederacy uh who were all for owning people so yeah i mean i i i, I don't i mean i don't think that he was trying to make them sympathetic i think he was showing them as losing in the scene like you know you even have the scene where uh where tuco shows up uh with blondie you know suffering severe heat stroke and third degree sunburns uh, in the back of his thing, and he's like, "Ah, this guy needs help," and they're like, "We're not going to help you. Like, we don't have anything to help you with." I think, I think, in a way, yeah, because it's showing one side is winning, so they're coming off kind of a little bit more, a little bit. Uh, I can't think of the word. I'm, I'm trying the way I'm trying to describe it. Um, like they they do arrogant. seem like, oh, yeah, they seem like more arrogant, more, uh, yeah, more like jackasses but i think like also it's it's partially because like these guys are just downtrodden and downbeaten but i get where you're coming from where it does like it does kind of feel like oh the poor little confederacy <laughs> losing the war well it's funny because both right. both of the scenes that you guys have just referenced were cut from the movie but they're in the extended cut which is the cut all of us watched well, the premiere um, cut the premiere cut, right. So so the scene when Tuco and Blondie are rolling into camp and, and Blondie's injured um, by Tuco. And then also the scene that I think Nicole might be referring to, which is when Angel Eyes comes across a desolate, you know, Confederacy encampment that has just clearly gone awry and they're out of supplies and everyone's all beat up and just completely destitute. Um, both of those are fairly lengthy scenes. One's like four minutes, one's like a minute and a half that were cut entirely from this movie. Uh, which is probably a decent segue into the fact that there are like two different-ish cuts. I don't know if the cuts in this in this movie justify arguing one is that much better than the other. I don't but... understand what like because I felt like those those scenes had plot substance to them. No, they totally do. I mean, I think it's just it's a three-hour movie. Maybe that yeah. was part of it. Is like, what can well, we cut well, out that like is yeah. not entirely vital to get this no, down? No, no, like no. seventeen, eighteen minutes. It was. It I was. Think this movie could have been a good half hour shorter, longer. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the reason that they that they made him cut it when it came to America was not like, oh, this is just too long. It's like, no, we need to be able to show this as many times in a day as possible. Three right. hours is too long. We need. Right. We need to fill seats. Yeah, and then, then, you know, many years later, Peter Jackson's like, hold my beer. I got this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, but it, and here's, here's what I found very interesting as well. Um, I mentioned this in our chat when I was watching the movie. There's this point in the movie at exactly 1.30 where everything is wrapped up really neatly. It could end the movie uh, in the sense of 
leading into a second part where uh, which Tuco, scene is that where it stops? So this is at exactly one thirty is a scene where Tuco and Blondie are rolling off from just having been at Tuco's brothers, where Blondie has been nursed back to health, and uh, it is you know, leading out of some of the only character development we get in the movie, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and Tuco makes a quip and then Blondie kind of smirks at him because he knows what's really going on. And then he offers him a cigar and then it cuts to this wide shot of them riding off in the wagon and the horses into the sunset toward what will inevitably become, uh, you know, them running in with the army and again and all that other stuff. You could cut I, that right there. Part one. I disagree. Part two. I disagree because there is no climax. There is no conflict. There is no mm. fight that happens. There is no climax to that part. Maybe you I have mean... you have twenty minutes before that. You have Blondie wandering through wandering through the desert with Tuco torturing him, and then recovering. You know, he there's the whole Bill Carson thing, and then recovering. I think like the half hour before that isn't particularly. I, I get where you said like that mm-hmm. is a really nice part to take a break, put an intermission in this sucker, because uh, that's kind of where I ended up like pausing it and coming back yeah. later. Um, but I don't think that it has anything satisfying enough right up to that point to really be mm-hmm. like, okay, I could wait, you know, a year for the next part of the story. Yeah, it almost strikes me more like a, um, I mentioned Kill Bill uh, as something where it's like it could be a full movie but, on its own, but also like uh, you could just slap it in the middle and that's what Tarantino wanted to do. But Kill Bill has a really exciting sword fight just before the end of that movie. That's true. It's that's a good point. That is a good point. I think... And this is in our docket somewhere, I believe. Uh, do do do. Good podcasting here. Uh, someone in our docket said, uh, "You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of build up." Oh, here it is. All very uh, slow build up for very quick action, right? Because there's only I don't want to downplay it, but for a three hour movie, there's only a couple fight scenes. There's only a few gunfights. Oh, there's so much. <laughs> so much. There's so much build up. Like the yeah. the last twenty minutes could easily be the last 10 minutes how dare you how dare you suggest they cut (laughs) any of that because that whole scene is beautiful he's gonna look at that guy that guy's gonna look at that guy oh it's so good i understand no i i and he you know him standing on the cross with the rope around his neck oh yeah that part's a little drama i guess that that goes they go on sergio leone takes it as far as it would go in like every other movie. He, and then he pushes it. past it and stretches it out. And then he pushes past that some more <laughs> and yeah. stretches that some more. And he does and it with everything. Like, like there's not oh, even God, just the cares? fighting. Like there's a shot yeah. right before the scene. And don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm with David. I love both these scenes. But there's a shot before it where Tuco is just straight up running around the graveyard for five minutes. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And it's yeah, a great yeah, scene, yeah. but oh my god! At some point, you're like, just find the grave. <laughs> Which uh, I was I, so yeah. I, I since I have like the a DVD that came out in the mid to late 2000s that had all these like special features. I was watching a couple of them, and um, one of them they were actually talking to uh, Clint Eastwood, who you forget has been old for about uh, 50 years now. Uh, <laughs> Because even then, I was like, oh, it's old man, but he looks so good. He was so young back then in <laughs> 2004. Uh, and just him talking about how, yeah, uh, Leone going with all of the really long shots. He's like, that's just very not much not my style. And they were showing like some of the scenes and it's just, like how some of these shots are lasting like 30 seconds, 40 seconds. And it's like, that is not something you get in a lot of movies are these shots that last that long. <laughs> It's very true. Right. And I mean, you know, Eastwood as a director is is in is famous slash infamous for being like a one take <laughs> director. And he's for, for good or for ill. Yeah, I mean, there was I was just listening to uh, the Malton on Movies podcast and they had an interview with Army Hammer, who was in uh Jay Edgar, which is a Clint Eastwood directed movie. And I forgot he directed that. Holy crap. Yeah. He, he told there's this one shot where they're like walking and talking down a hallway in army hammers character. And they told army hammer that it was a rehearsal. And so he actually had his <laughs> sides. He had his lines in a, on paper in his hand and walking down this hallway. And he was like looking at them occasionally <sighs> while he's talking and they went through, they did the scene, and Clint goes, cut, 
All right, we got it. All right, let's go on to the next one. Uh, <laughs> I love like, whoa, how little whoa, 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 wait, boss. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had my sides in my hand, and Clint Eastwood looks at his DP and he looks at you know the other lighting guy, and he's like, "Can we edit around that?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, in this this shot, the camera was over here, and then walking over there, the camera was over here." And yeah, we can we can work. <laughs> Uh, so that actually uh, brings me to something in this movie which is the uh the bridge scene um which clint that eastwood, was my favorite scene in the movie I think. yeah so it's insane clint eastwood uh and eli wallach talking about it because apparently like that bridge it was like they didn't build a set bridge they didn't build like a bridge with like fake timber and with like fake rocks they built a bridge that wasn't there before and they, they, they build it. They load it up with all these tons of dynamite. Uh, they set up these three cameras. Uh, the Spanish army uh, or the Italian army was the ones who built it. Um, and you know, the, the actors get to safety and they're getting ready to, to blow it up. And the, the explosion happens like, Oh, that was really cool. Wouldn't it be <laughs> really funny if they weren't filming? Uh, and Sergio Leone is like coming up the hill, like cursing in Italian, because apparently they gave the plunger to uh, a, a captain in the army um, to ignite the dynamite. And uh, he was not on the timing of the film and blew it up way too early, uh, which meant the cameras weren't rolling. And so oh, the, the army oh for God. free rebuilt the bridge <laughs> to blow it up again. So they used the it- Italian army members as extras for um, military I'm sure. scenes. I'm not sure on that one. I didn't. They didn't mention anything about that. But oh, okay. Possibly. So some of the actors from the army were somebody gave them for the plunger. Wow. No, like the actual army, like the actual oh, military, okay. the actual oh, military. So they were yeah. There, like, see, see, in the U.S., we give you a tax credit, and apparently in Italy, <laughs> we will actually loan you our our army. To build this oh, bridge they, for they, you. They loaned him, like those cannons and stuff were loaned out from <laughs> museums. Uh, but also, oh, our cool. our military will give you uh, jets. Yes, like, they will. Because, oh, yeah. by God, isn't Top Gun still one of the greatest recruiting videos <laughs> ever made? <laughs> I don't know. It, it just got me into a really shirtless gay volleyball. I don't know about the army. Uh, oh, well, yeah, I mean, hey, why not? <laughs> but they, um, uh, anyway. <laughs> But I wanted to. I wanted to ask. I can't, uh, we finally watched enough movies that I can't remember. I recently, within the last few months, watched The Bridge on the River Kwai. Did we do that on the podcast, or was that we just in my not. own time? We have not we have done not. that. Okay, <laughs> it is our second because time seeing happened, Eastwood, though. We we've seen him at that, opposite that spectrums. With it's also Bridge our, on the River Kwai. They had to run the train off the bridge twice. <laughs> this is also our second time seeing Wallach, and I wonder if we'll ever see a movie where he plays a white person. Wait, what was he? Oh, in? I got one. <laughs> what? What was he what in? I got one. He was in Magnificent Seven. He was the leader of the gang. Oh my god! Of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Goodness, sorry, Nicole. Go ahead. Oh no! I have one of my favorite movies. It's it's just one of those fun little rainy day not feeling well feel good movies um to put on is keeping the faith which is one of the few that edward norton has directed um and edward norton plays a priest and ben stiller plays a rabbi and eli wallach plays like the the head rabbi of his i i guess local i don't know not the head of the synagogue, but like the, the local regional synagogue group or what have you. And so he's, you know, he's actually not playing someone who's an ethnicity that's different so, from his own. I will say in this movie, he looked, the makeup was much better. Than <laughs> yes, that, it definitely that. was. Indeed. Uh, he at least looked naturally tan. Yes. <laughs> But he is. I feel like we should break this down for listeners. We really haven't at all. Um, he's he's the ugly, and uh, yes. Angel Eyes is the bad. Not bad for Eli Wallach. He's not that bad looking. No, dude. he's not. <laughs> and then uh, you know, Angel Eyes is the bad, and uh, Blondie Clint Eastwood is the good. Now, what I found interesting when I when I came away from this is that like everybody's an antihero in this movie, well, um, except for Angel Eyes. Angel Eyes is. 
straight up a bastard. But here's the thing, like, okay, I'm going to make a weird argument for Angel Eyes in a moment, but let me continue. <laughs> um, I like that because it's totally the antithesis of what American Westerns were, what John Wayne was. Um, and what I found weird about it was, you know, and, and great about it, is that they're anti-heroes in the sense that the good isn't really that good. They're all just very greedy. They're all looking out for number one. They've all betrayed each other at some point. They've literally had like four different alliances in which any any two of the three were against the other one. Um, and I actually, I almost find at times the ugly and the good to be worse than the bad. And maybe it's just because I expect the bad to be bad. He takes money, he kills people and he follows through. He also, uh, he also, he also shoots kids and uh, beats women. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Uh, But like, I guess maybe it's just because he's pitched to me as bad. Whereas the other two, I expect Clint Eastwood to be good. Like the movie's blatant about it. The movie splash screens and freeze yeah, images on twice. them. Tells you who they are yeah. supposed to be. And at no point do I. Okay, so Here's... you put this in our docket. What makes the good good? And, and I've been thinking on this. He is not good, uh, but he is moral. He, in a way that is satisfying to the audience. And I'll explain a little bit. I mean, you know, he does have moments of compassion. Um, the dying soldier, he gives him a couple of smokes of the right. cigar. Um, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't kill Tuco when he has plenty of chances to. Um, but he kind of does. Well, like, like but, <laughs> he left here's, Tuco here's in all the, the here's how, Yeah, here's, here's how, uh, I mean, he, he, you know, there are people who are having, you know, there's tension between them. There's a standoff between them. And then Clint Eastwood comes in and he is sort of the, uh, the judge of the moment. He is the one who, who weighs in and decides how things are going to go. And it is a way that to the audience is satisfying. Uh, not necessarily maybe like right or wrong, but it, is you know it, it he is the one that it's like yeah that's 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 the outcome we would have wanted he's also know, just I'm, the coolest kind of with brett i mean yes he's definitely the coolest um he's constantly lighting matches off his boot I know. Or, so much like, swagger a uh, post or near the end with just the end his thumb he just flicks the end of the match and, and the way he dresses man Oh my god! Yeah, he's very—he's very suave. He's got style. I'll give him that. Um, but I did spend the first half of the movie going. He's really not very good. Oh, he's, he hosed, he's an anti-hero. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he hosed the whole thing with Tuco. They have a good thing going. But with the collecting the reward, then freeing him just as they're trying to hang him. Yeah, but then Tuca um, will never be worth more than $3,000. <laughs> yeah, but I but, mean, they can carry on that scheme. You know, communication's not that great in the Old West from town to town. They can carry out that scheme for a good long while true. before they get, you know, before people catch on to yeah. it. I've seen I've um, seen Dragonheart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Dragonheart oh, God, ripping off the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yep. Um, um, but they, you know... Blondie is the one who screws up the partnership. He's like, you'll never be worth more than $3,000. So he just like cuts him loose without any of the money from their last haul. Um, That's true. All the money from the last job and just leaves him to like walk 70 miles through the desert to the next town. And, you know, it's just like, I, I didn't like him that much and he only turns into the good in that scene with the bridge where you know they meet the they meet the uh union captain who is sick of fighting and drunk all the time and thinks that the battle over the bridge is completely pointless and men are dying for nothing and you know tuco and blondie watch the battle for a while and they agree that men are dying for nothing and Blondie decides to blow up the bridge for the captain, get rid of it. And that's where he turns. He makes the turn to the good, I would say, I would argue. Granted, he also blows up the bridge. That moment that he's the good. 
He also blows up the bridge so they can cross. Um, there's selfish motivation as well. Oh yeah, yeah I mean they could go like a couple miles downriver and cross the bridge. Yeah, that was that so. that was confusing to me, especially because the river is apparently just something you. It's only like four feet deep in any given spot. Right. Um, yeah, I mean the other thing is like even when he leaves Tuco in the desert. They walk miles in this movie like I could not. I mean, he's like, oh, it's just 70 miles. If You know, you'll be able to make it. And then at one point, they're going to the desert when it's the other way around. And Tuco's dragging his sorry ass through the desert. And now it's 130 how, miles or something like that. How much water? Where was Tuco keeping all that water? I he's like, saddlebags full of it. Yeah, I guess. He's had enough to like wash his feet. Yeah, which is another which was... is another scene that got cut was the washing the feet and then kicking it away right as Clint Eastwood tries to drink. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that was that was a bit much, you know. Also, you know, that's twenty miles. Wa- I've walked twenty miles in a day before it's, for it's like charity walks. Difficult. Yeah, it is difficult. It is. It takes a long time especially if you're pacing yourself to make sure you don't get exhausted or say you're walking through sand and can't walk very fast, it's going to take you a good, even if you're going fairly quickly, it's going to take you a good three days in the desert with no water. Yeah. 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 And also like what I also found kind of weird is that when you look at the good, he is most certainly portrayed as this incredibly suave dude that is on top of the other two and and toward the end of the movie in particular he certainly is outsmarting everybody but for the first half of this movie he's the one getting outsmarted by tuco pretty repeatedly he's the oh, one Tuko's, that gets like oh tuco's very smart by the way like let's not keep in mind Tuko's, that the ugly is not dumb. well he's very clever he's very clever yeah the ugly is yes, not necessarily he's, dumb he's, he's yeah hanny Right. Yeah. Right. But he's yeah, getting outsmarted by Tuco at two or three different instances. Like literally Tuco captures him. He gets away by sheer luck. Five minutes later, Tuco captures him again. Yeah. Tuco, I mean, Tuco is good at what he does. They they make that very clear that he is a very good criminal. Can we talk about the scene where Tuco robs a poor shop owner by just going through and pretending to purchase everything? <laughs> and how uncomfortable oh, that scene is? Funny though. That's it's- that's the big yeah. comic relief. No, it's scene a great movie, scene, but you feel so bad for the poor, poor man that's just like pulling everything out of the display cabinet and handing it to this, oh, you know, robber. Who looks like a, a cartoon character? The man looks like a sad walrus. I know. <laughs> and uh, well, that's actually one thing um, that that uh, was pointed out to me in one of the special features I was watching: how uh, unique the faces are in this movie. And that was something that Sergio Leone did is like, you know, the, the, there's like, he just, he used the long shots, you know, the shots are very far away uh, and all that as well. But then he would have these just beautiful portraiture close up shots. And mm-hmm. every face in this movie is unique. Like even when it's showing you somebody for just a second, as the camera pans over them, is like, there is just a whole story written on their face. And it's not just like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever, like extra, we can get to stand in here. It's like everybody has a, a very unique look to them. And I, it's just right. really fascinating. Oh, yeah. The, the and guy. It's very different from. Oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Oh, it's, I was just going to say it's very different from how Hollywood did it, um, especially in the, the female characters. Actually, uh, something I did notice, there were a lot of like, very attractive male actors in this movie and just like one very attractive woman. You know, that woman in the very beginning of the movie. The one that's looking family. for Bill Carson. Right. Oh, no, when, with the the guy, oh, yeah. when Angel Eyes comes looking for Bill Carson or the guy who knows him and his family, his wife is, she is utterly beautiful. It would not surprise me to find out that she had been, you know, a model in Italy and was cast, you know, just for this scene. But like every other woman in the movie is it's not a handsome woman, let's just say, but very distinctive looking in one way or another. Uh, but the a lot of the men are actually quite, quite startlingly good looking in some ways. Um, but, and Hollywood would have done it completely the opposite way, where mm. the men are all, you know, like 
weird and character looking and all the women are gorgeous and whores. (laughs) Because that's just how Hollywood did Westerns for the most part. You know, there's like the one or two virtuous women and then all the sex workers in the saloon. So, yeah, I'm not sure where I was going, (laughs) but I also did want to point out that it, it would have been nice to have a female character yeah. in this who played a significant role. Just yeah. one. I mean, I mean, with the with the story, I yeah, it's like it's uh, it, I don't know, it's like it's it's about these three people. I mean, I think yeah, part of the yeah, problem I mean, is focuses on these three men. Right, I understand. Right. Because if you look at the billing yeah. on this movie, I mean, underneath the three of them, there's the union captain and Tuco's you know, uh, brother Pablo that shows up for one scene. Uh, so right. it's, it's very much a character piece, which I think brings it, us into another discussion topic that David put in here, which is, you know, Tuco is the only fleshed out character. He's the only one where we find out anything about his family. We mm-hmm. find out anything about his background, why he became a bandit, uh, what his mm-hmm. motivations are in some capacity, his strife with his brother. Uh, we find all that out, in a brief scene at that, you know, minute 30 mark. Uh, and then the re- the other two stay a complete mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, was, was a, a big uh, problem for uh, Clint Eastwood. Um, Cause he felt he was being upstaged the entire time by Tuco. Um, and they kind of kept adding all these little bits for Tuco. You know, Tuco has these long scenes where he's by himself with all these other people, but you don't really see, Blondie or Angel Eyes on their own. Uh, I guess Angel Eyes a bit, but especially Blondie, uh, you don't really see on his own very much. No. Um, and so there's like almost no background on those guys, which I think kind of preserves their characters in a really interesting way. Um, but I could understand why it'd be really frustrating being in that movie and being like, this guy has all these great scenes. And we find out about his family and like, what do we learn about me? I can shoot a gun really well. You know? I love how what we've talked about with both 1960s westerns is just everyone was petty against everyone else over who got more camera time yeah that's uh <laughs> well I, I, w- I would say i don't think clint Eastwood was ever petty at uh at the Eli degree Wallach. of those other two in uh in the magnificent seven it, yeah um well lee van cleef didn't mind so much i found well, a great quote from him on his IMDb page, where apparently at one time he said, you know, being born with those beady little eyes was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah, he uh, really was having bad guy. Yeah, he was having a hard time finding work for a long time because like his he had kind of like burned out. Uh, you know, he people said like, well, if you you know if you got like surgery done and we had like a different face, we would hire you more. Uh, and then this movie totally propelled him into a sort of a late stardom. And, uh, yeah, good for him. He, I mean, this guy worked only on Westerns his entire life. If you look at his stuff. And no, like, no, 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 no. Pretty he much. He worked on a lot of Westerns, but in like the eighties and the nineties, he was, he was in, uh, he was a heavy in escape from New York. And yeah, that that's popped true. him into more modern movies after that. Yeah. Well, he was only alive for a few years after that, but, uh, sadly, yes, he died yeah. at 64. So, yeah. So another another discussion topic, and uh, I think we've addressed this slightly, is I, I, I wondered several times in this movie why Blondie was even bothering with Tuco, especially after Blondie, you know, Blondie offers up the other half of the of the information for for those unfamiliar, uh, you know, the whole shtick of the latter half of this movie is that, you know, uh, Tuco knows the the graveyard where the money is buried, but he doesn't know the name of the grave in which it's buried. And that is what, of course, Blondie knows. Now, Tuco offers his information up first, uh, and then Blondie reciprocates and gives him mostly the truth. Um, He probably would have found it eventually if he had been left to his own devices. He gave him the grave next door. Um, Did you see how many graves were in that place, man? Quite a few graves, yeah. But you gotta imagine he'd, like, start nearby. (laughs) Um... And, and he, he, it just, it, it, I find it very weird at times. Like he, he leaves Tuco half the money at the end, and I know that's part of like the look. He has some morality, and that's why he's the good. Um, 
But considering the animosity between them for the majority of the film and the attempted murder, I'm kind of surprised at some point Blondie doesn't just go get the money and ride off into the sunset. Which he does, but I'm talking about all of the money. Uh, I, I get kind of the sense that he's the guy, like, what's he going to do with $20,000? Like, he's a, he's a gun for hire. $200,000. You know? Or $200,000, which is, yeah, which is about uh, an equivalent is now is like over $2 million. Um, right, and he leaves Tuco half the money, but without a horse, how's Tuco going to get right. that <laughs> weight of gold? Yeah, he leaves... Yeah, and 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 tied up yet again. You know, he leaves he leaves right. to go with the money, but what good is it going to do him? Um, I don't know. I just I, I get the sense like this guy. Yeah, sure, that guy's going to get by for a long time with that money, but he's not ever going to like retire, especially like at the age he's at. He's not going to retire and go live like a life. Uh, you know, he's going to spend that money on more bullets and probably whiskey and tobacco. <laughs> Yeah, lots of tobacco, a whole lot of tobacco. Yeah, no, he might buy a, a nice little, a nice little farm in Mexico and like hire people to work it for him, so he doesn't have to do the work. But but I, this is a guy that I don't think would be satisfied with that life. <laughs> uh, he finds the right woman. I, I right love I that. love how we are musing about uh, Blondie's retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, guys, look, uh, we, we know the money doesn't last them forever. There's two more movies. Uh, I do want to tell another story. So Eli Wallach almost died like three times making this movie. Yeah, because apparently Sergio yeah. Leone just does not care about his actors. Oh, no, Italy. Italy is was so different at this, t- at this time. Like they just straight up did not have the same precautions. Uh, yeah. One time a horse rode off while he was still on the back tied up. Um Another time, the, the, the bags that the money was in, they, they poured like an acid on it to make it come apart when he hit it with the shovel. And it looked like this Italian soda that Eli Wallach loved. And so he reached down it to take a drink out of it. And like he took a sip of it and drank acid. Uh, and then almost had his head cut off by the train. Oh, my that God. Poor that guy. train scene. Oh. oh, yeah, when he gets out of the handcuffs. When he gets out of the handcuffs by putting the man he is handcuffed to on train tracks. Oh, Ooh. I was just waiting for that cow catcher to hit the first man and drag him and, and pull him along. And it doesn't have to show you any blood for it to be just so uncomfortable. Like, it was way more graphic than I was expecting. Yeah, like the body like like tumbling underneath the sink for a couple seconds. Ooh. Well, and, yeah. And when he when he was beating up Eli Wallach, like Eli Wallach's covered or Tuco's covered in blood, and he's like spitting up blood. Are you talking about when Angel Eyes is beating him up? No, Angel Eyes is watching him be beat up. Oh, Angel yeah. Eyes is just there, right? The, <laughs> the big curly haired guy with the milky eye. That was the yeah. most beautifully done torture scene I think I've ever seen. It was so beautiful <laughs> because it, like. I just can't even get over how good that scene was because the whole shtick is that. Explain. Yeah. So the whole the whole shtick. Yes, I don't sound like a sociopath here. um, Is (laughs) apparently, and we we never really find out how, but apparently Angel Eyes has worked himself up to a a place of prominence long enough for him to sit in the Union Army, and Uh, he's he's pretending to be someone else. Oh, okay. Okay, he's pretending to be someone else, so he can basically sit there and wait for this Bill Carson man. Bill Carson, of course, leads him to this $200,000, or so he believes. And when uh, Blondie and Tuco get picked up by the Union, and they're brought in because they're wearing Confederate uniforms, (laughs) and uh, they start yelling Confederate, um, you know, all sorts of fun Confederate things (laughs) at the Union Army soldiers because they couldn't see what color their vests were. In any case, they thought they were gray because they were covered in exactly. Like, um, in yeah. any case, he brings Tuco into his his quarters, and the band outside is playing this music, and it's beautiful music. Like the 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 war music, for lack of a better genre association in this movie, is really great. The trumpets and and the the folk instrumentation that that the uh, Union Army is playing outside, and they all know everyone in this camp knows that every single time he tells those guys to practice and he brings someone in there, he's going to beat the living daylights out of them. And there's this scene where Tuco's getting beat up and this music is playing and then it cuts to these soldiers of the Union who are, like, one of them is crying. One of them is, like, stops playing and then is forced to keep playing and he's crying and Tuco's getting beat up and, like, 
you know, Angel Eyes is, you know, twirling his mustache, and it's just like, it's a really intense scene. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's beautifully done. Uh, and it, and it's like, and, and I think that ties in well, perhaps, with the, with the music in this movie. And Nicole put it perfectly ah. when she says, you know, the use of score is a punctuation rather than constant background. That's a perfect example of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, there's no, most movies will have a score, at least some even sort of a musical hum in the background at all times during the film. And it's very unusual when it stops entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, But this movie has very long stretches of no score whatsoever in the background. It's all just the ambient noise and the dialogue. And that's all you get. Um, But then somebody will say something funny, you know, like Tuco will deliver a, a funny line that sort of caps off the entire scene. And then you get this musical sting at the end, like, yeah, you know, it's just <laughs> to call your, it, it's sort of to underline it. Um, say, Hey, wasn't that, wasn't that a fun moment in this movie? <laughs> or, Hey, wasn't that a really dramatic moment in this movie? And that's, you know, the torture scene the whole time, there's this song going on in the background that they're forcing the Confederate soldiers to play. And, you know, the other soldiers gathered around are like, a lot of them know what it means. You know, they mm-hmm. tell Blondie that's a lot of us have had our turn in that shed while the singing's going on. And it, all, it always lasts as long as the song and they keep the song going and going i think they make them play it like three or four times in a row yeah uh and, and i just want to point out the score uh done by ania morricone um we talked about when we talked about uh, uh, uh the other western that i brought to this podcast magnificent, magnificent seven Magnificent Seven. uh we talked about like how just iconic that was just such an iconic western uh score and this movie though is probably the western score that people know you know that and it's just it's so good it's so good (laughs) i was just listening to it today while doing some stuff around the house and man it's so good yeah what i love about it is it's it's biting instrumentally um it all the the instrumentation feels very sharp and very aggressive and it doesn't feel uh, it doesn't feel cheap as because there's a lot of like 60s Westerns where they're playing like Ring of Fire in the background and um, and it feels like they're just like taking like cheap imitation mariachi music and that's what they're going to use. And this this movie has just, just incredible bouts of really intense instrumentation all the way from the opening titles of this movie which are some of the coolest opening titles i have ever seen <laughs> mm-hmm. i i i think uh you can compare and contrast magnificent seven in this movie in some really interesting ways where as we said everyone here is kind of an anti-hero and everyone in that movie you know like oh they're gunslingers uh they're a little bit greedy doing it for, them, for themselves but in the end they do it for the right reasons and here everyone's just doing it for the money uh, the score there is like, we're going on an adventure. It's going to be very exciting. And yes. this is like a little bit more, it's a little more tense, a little more somber. Uh, the, the action scenes in Magnificent Seven are, are long and exciting and drawn out. And this is like, it's all about that buildup of where the, like people getting shot means a lot more here than like the bunch of, you know, background extras getting shot in Magnificent Seven. Like people don't necessarily want to get in gunfights because you could die. <laughs> yeah. There's like an operatic buildup to every single fight. <laughs> they they, they to... talk about, they talk about it as like an aria in the special yeah, feature. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, they have to build up to this decision <laughs> of whether or not we're going to fight. And, uh, and I love that final shootout because of that, because of course, both Tuco and Blondie go for uh angel eyes for angel eyes um and then and then also blondie just insists on shooting him like nine more times 
Uh, Even though he's got no bullets. Yeah, and he can. Or no, uh, sorry, Tuco tries. And then he also conveniently falls into a grave, which is just great. Mm. (laughs) And he shoots and he shoots his gun in there and his hat. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I mean, that movie, that that has influenced a lot of movies thereafter. I was actually just listening to our episode on The Phantom of the Theater, uh, where the bad guy at the end falls into this, like, sarcophagus oh, full of people's ashes. Good lord. <laughs> where did they get a sarcophagus? <laughs> there, just tumbles into it, so. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this, this movie... I, I never, I haven't seen a ton of, you know, early Westerns. I mean, Butch Cassidy's one of my all-time favorite films, but that was kind of one of the only films I'd seen in this genre before David brought both of these to the table now. And it was amazing to me to see, b- both in this and The Magnificent Seven, where a lot of these tropes that I'm familiar with and where a lot of these, you know, plot devices and iconic scores and s- film styles all come from. Um and this felt like even more definitive in a way, because at the end of this movie, I was like, I understand like nine other movies I've seen now. Um, and I understood <laughs> oh, yeah. Clint Eastwood's career much better because this was the youngest I've ever seen him. When he talked at the very beginning, which is one of the first times someone talks his in this movie. His voice is so different. His voice is so different. <laughs> even even compared to like 80s Dirty Harry, I was like, well, that's a young Clint Eastwood. Because it's just oh, so weird. Check out like you gotta check out some old episodes of Rawhide if you want to see him yeah. really young. Oh, but it, well, it blew my it, mind. Like almost no lines in his face. It's also like watching this movie and then going and watching anything with Scott Eastwood in it. It's like, oh man, you look <laughs> just like your dad. Oh, and, and I also had seen oh, so many photos over the years <laughs> of of him in that outfit with the face all burnt. Like I'd always seen that all over the place. And it was great to finally like put a movie to that. And, um, he, it doesn't last long. His face heals, but, uh, man, it was cool. Yeah, really well. And really quickly. I know. <laughs> uh, it was, it's because he was in it. Have some good stuff at that mission. I was about yeah. to say, it's because <laughs> it was at the mission with, with the priest. Uh, yeah, it was, especially because we had just talked about him in this show on something like Grand Torino. It was wonderful to see a totally different side of an actor that I, I really like a lot of his work. Um, just a weird side tangent. Has anyone seen The Mule? No. I've not. I thought for sure that was going to be super Oscar Beatty. That was his um, his movie this year uh, or last year. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Uh, it was like Clint Eastwood does Clint Eastwood things while moving drugs. And he's 95 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> but let's also close our discussion here with two more discussion topics. David, you already briefly mentioned that the director and Eastwood started to develop some animosity from this film. It sounds like it was largely yeah. because Eastwood wasn't getting the fair shake in his eyes with the script. It was even before that Eastwood refused to do the movie until he got a bunch of money, uh, like $250,000, um, which was a, buttload for 1966 um and a ferrari and once and like sergio leone like flew to america with like the script to get him to try to do it uh and eastwood just like kind of refused for a time until you know until he agreed to these terms then he came on and did it 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 sounded like based on some more recent stuff that um i don't know if he has now but uh, with as of 10 or so years ago um Clint Eastwood had not watched this movie um, or had, had, had not seen it in a, in a very long time and kind of seemed like he was at a place where he was like, yeah, I, I should watch that now. Um, but apparently just kind of sour. He was just very sour on the whole experience. And the two of them kind of started talking trash. Um, I can't, I can't remember what, um, what Clint Eastwood said about Sergio Leone, but Sergio Leone compared him, uh, Clint Eastwood to Robert De Niro and was like, uh, Clint Eastwood, he's he's like Marble. He's just there, but uh, Bobby, Bobby acts. Uh, let me see if I can find the actual. Um, I'm not going to be able to find the actual quote, but it's uh, it's really great. Ah, here we go. Okay, yeah. Uh, Eastwood moves like a sleepwalker between explosions <laughs> and hails of bullets, and he is always the same—a block of marble. Bobby, first of all, is an actor. Clint, first of all, is a star. Bobby suffers. Clint yawns. Oh man. Mm. 
Those are fighting yeah. I, words. That's harsh. That's I would definitely harsh. argue more that Clint Eastwood underplays everything, but that mm-hmm. that works out a good 85% of the time. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and Eastwood's uh, issue with him was that um, Leone was a perfectionist and often forceful, insisted on shooting scenes from many different angles. More than paying once. Attention to the, yeah, paying attention to the most minute of details, which would often exhaust the actors. <laughs> and that's why he shoots the films the way he does. Yeah, that's what I was about that to might, say. It, might, it was probably why, a big influence. Why Eastwood shoots, you know, is like a one-take director is because this experience so turned him <laughs> off from doing things from multiple angles and multiple takes that he was just like, screw this, you know, figure out what you want, shoot it that way, and then go on to the next thing. Yep. He's, you know, his sets are very famously, everybody goes home at five. <laughs> yeah. my, my, my two takeaways from this part of our discussion is, A, I can't imagine Clint Eastwood watching a movie. Like, you just picture him, like, in a theater with popcorn. I can't. I just, <laughs> mentally, it doesn't fit. Uh, at home. Be at home. At home. Yeah. yeah, but it's not like, it can't be like popcorn. It has to be like chewing tobacco. Like into a cup. No, like, Clint, Eastwood doesn't, Clint Eastwood doesn't like tobacco, man. Oh, he doesn't? No. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I digress. He's so like gritty and, and I just can't picture it. But then two, um, he also also got 10% of, of the, box right, office, of the box office. Un- American box office. Right, which was, was uncommon. Um, which was uncommon at this time. And it was not something he had previously gotten on the other two films. And that's another reason that the director didn't like him. Yep, and it made twenty five million in America on a one million dollar budget. So it was a very big success. Nice. Uh, so we'll close on a, on a stupid topic uh, because <laughs> this bothers me, and it might bother Nicole too, be, unless she just did this unconsciously. This movie needs an Oxford comma in the title. Fight me to the death on that. The, it should be the good comma, the bad comma, and the ugly. And anyone who tells me differently is either the AP style guide or wrong. It doesn't. Maybe I put it in there subconsciously. You did put it in subconsciously, which is which is which is why I put this in there because I was like, "Is Nicole trying to tell me something? Does she also agree with me?" Oh, absolutely. Oxford, come all the way. I I went to the University of Chicago. Chicago style uses the Oxford comma. The bad and the ugly are not (laughs) the same entity. Put a comma in there. Yeah. Okay, I can end on that now. Uh, <laughs> David, thanks for bringing us to the table. Although you could argue that the bad was ugly also. Yeah. Ooh, certainly an ugly personality. Uh, yeah. Is there yeah. any final words anyone wants to have on the good, the bad, and the ugly? Uh, it's it's worth it. Uh, we described oh, yeah. it as long. Yeah. It's, it's a long movie, but I, I say for people out there who have not watched it and just listened to our whole discussion on it, um, watch it. Like you should definitely should see this movie at one point in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, this is... Oh, David, you even warned me. You were like, in our chat, this is going to be three hours, guys. I know you, Brett. I know you hey, hey. when you watch movies. <laughs> that is true. That is very, very true. And I did only watch this yesterday, which is still farther away than I normally do. Um, and I was dreading this. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I don't want to watch a three hour movie this week. I don't have time for this. I ended up staying till staying up till two in the morning finishing this movie because I refused to have to split it up because I was so engrossed in it. So thank you, David. I'm so happy I saw it. You're welcome. All right. Very good. Where can we find everybody online? Nicole, what about you? I'm your word whiz on Twitter, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z, Nicole underscore Davis on Letterboxd. And I run our Facebook page, and that is uh, facebook.com slash moviegorounderpodcast. And that is where we will have the poll for You Did This to Us, where you can go and vote and torture us or delight us. Why don't you try delighting us? That would be nice. It's happened before, I think, maybe. It has. It happened for some of us anyway. Uh, I think (laughs) typically it's like I'm delighted at it and you guys are completely repulsed. And it's kind of tends to flip then. (laughs) Um, Yeah, go vote. And remember, you'll be able to vote for next time around. Whatever I announced at the beginning of this show and whatever is in your show document notes on your podcatcher is what is coming up in your feed next week. So be sure to follow along for the next voting process. David, though, where can people find you? 
Uh, you can find me around the internet under the username DavLuz, that is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter and Instagram, you can find me there and also on the Brokebot Mountain podcast. Very good. My name is Brett Stewart. You can find me at I am Brett Stewart on Twitter. That is Brett with two T's and Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Everything I do is over there. That'll do it for myself, David Nicole. We will be back next week with whatever you did to us. We'll find out soon. Thanks, everybody.